As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. And that second question is, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? Because if yes, if you have, you really want it, you've given it every possible chance to succeed, your best effort, and it hasn't worked, like it's time to shut it down and move on. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I want to start this episode with a special announcement. This past week, I launched a membership community for creators who want to go pro. It's called the Creative Companion Club, named after my newsletter, Creative Companion, and it's built to help you become a professional creator. I think it's an amazing time to be a creator because it's never been easier to be paid for the things that you make. And I love the term creator because of its inclusiveness. If you self-identify as a creator, you are a creator. If you're making things, you are a creator. But being a professional creator is a little bit of a different story. Professional creators are financially rewarded by their work. Professional creators approach their work more methodically and with a certain rigor. Professional creators are dedicated to making their creative work what they spend their days working on. And in my experience, there's no better life than that of a professional creator. So if you aspire to making this creator thing work for you, I want to help as many people become professional creators as I can with this podcast, with my newsletter, and now with this membership community, the Creative Companion Club. But I can't help you become a professional creator with a pre-recorded course. 
And I can't help you become a professional creator with a single cohort-based course either. Becoming a professional creator requires a lot of skills, a lot of projects, and above all, time. The best way for me to support you on that journey is through an ongoing relationship, a place where I can share with you what I'm learning, including the changing landscape, for months, if not years. That means that inside the Creative Companion Club, I'm extremely active in the forum and in direct messages. I host weekly live sessions, including office hours and one-on-one member hot seats. The Creative Companion Club is where I'm able to take my experience and insight and personalize it to your specific situation, and I am loving the interactions I'm having in the community. So if you want to learn more about the Creative Companion Club, visit joinccc.com or click the link in the show notes. That's joinccc.com. All right, well, today on the show, I'm talking with someone who shares a lot of the same beliefs as I do, and he's also one of my most requested guests of all time. Today, I'm speaking with Nathan Barry, the founder and CEO of ConvertKit, the leading creator marketing platform. My name is Nathan. I'm a designer, entrepreneur, founder, startup person, and welcome to my YouTube channel. I live on a farm in Boise, Idaho with 30 chickens, 12 ducks, 10 goats, three kids, two pigs, and one wife. That's the opening clip to Nathan's YouTube channel, which probably undersells his role of CEO at ConvertKit just a tiny bit. I love ConvertKit. I'm a proud customer and affiliate. ConvertKit and email generally are at the core of my business. And you may have heard of ConvertKit before. It's the email platform of choice for a lot of creators that have been on this show. But what you may not know is that prior to starting ConvertKit, Nathan was building quite a name as a creator himself. Yeah, so my business as a creator almost like didn't exist in early 2012. And then the end of 2012 into early 2013 like was one of the craziest times of my professional career. We'll talk about this at the beginning of the interview, but Nathan was writing and selling ebooks in 2012 and earning more than $150,000 in one year. And then in 2013, Nathan started building ConvertKit as a side project. So what I expected to have happen was to start ConvertKit and have it, you know, just like steadily grow, you know, a thousand a month, 2000, 5,000, right? Recurring revenue only goes up um, or so I thought. What actually happened is that we got to about 2000 a month in revenue and then it stayed flat and then gradually declined. And so I had this moment where uh, a friend of mine, Heaton Shaw was saying, hey, like you've been working on ConvertKit for a year and a half now you either need to like shut it down and move on to something else or double down on it and really make it successful. We'll talk about that decision in the interview as well. But thanks to Nathan's commitment, ConvertKit has grown a lot since 2013. Today, the company is at nearly $30 million in ARR, which means annual run rate, which is how much they're on pace to earn this year based on their current monthly recurring revenue of $2.5 million. And if you're wondering how I have these numbers, ConvertKit actually shares this information publicly at convertkit.bearmetrics.com, which I've shared in the show notes. You can see their full subscription metrics going all the way back to the start in 2013. And if you look at those graphs from 2013 until now, it's pretty wild just to see how steadily they've grown revenue since then, especially since 2015, which Matt Ragland mentioned in episode number 36 of this show. Actually, the day or maybe the week of me starting just my just my part time, just my contract at 
ConvertKit was the week that Pat Flynn's article, Why I Switched from AWeber to Infusionsoft to ConvertKit, came out. And for six months after that, so from October, November, like six months forward, ConvertKit, when I came on, had less than 500 active customers. And then we doubled every month for the next six months. So in this episode, we talk about Nathan's wild year of selling ebooks, trends he's seeing among creators today, a crucial business model decision that every creator should make, and why his relentlessness helped him make his decision to double down on ConvertKit look very smart in retrospect. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter at jklaus or on Instagram at creativeelements.fm. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And I also want to give a shout out to Nathan's podcast, The Nathan Barry Show, which is in my own heavy podcast rotation. Since you like Creative Elements, you'll love this show too. So now let's talk with Nathan. I started a blog in 2011, or 2010, 2011, you know, didn't know what it'd be about. Uh, in early 2012, I decided that I was going to focus in on designing iPhone applications as what I talked about and taught. I like kind of started to build a little bit of an audience around iPhone app design, but we're talking in the low hundreds of email subscribers. Okay. Um, and then I launched a book called The App Design Handbook on September 12th, 2012. And I had, you know, written that book in the six months prior, rolled it out to 800 email subscribers, 798, if we want to be precise. I can't believe you know these exact numbers and dates. <laughs> so I launched that. My goal from the book was to make $10,000 in lifetime sales. And I thought, I'm going to have this book and it's going to be a great thing for people to hire me to design iPhone apps for them because that's where my main income source was. I actually never took on another app design client because the book sold $12,000 worth in the first day, hit wow. 19000 by the end of the week, and it was just wild. What was the price point on that? The book itself was $29. And then if you, I had made these additional packages, which is something that I became really well known for, like in that 2012 to, I don't know, 2014 timeframe, was a lot of like packaging, positioning, pricing, sales page design. Because I also took the long form sales pages that, like direct response copywriters were doing and I made them beautiful. And so everyone was like, wait, you can take like great design and direct response copywriting and combine them. And so I had done that. But one of the things was I did three different price points at a time when people were doing usually just one price. They were saying, Hey, this book is 20 bucks or this course is 50 bucks. And uh, I did three price points. So it was the book for 29 and then for 79, I believe it was the book plus like resources you know, my Photoshop files, my Xcode, you know, asset library, all the tools that I used. And then the top package was that with a bunch of videos and interviews, uh, which I believe was 149 in that one. And uh, that pricing method doubled revenue over what I would have done with just, uh, you know, just the book. So it, it was huge. And then another quick thing that happened in that is... I'd been trying to write this book for a while and had all these false starts and I wanted to do it and it just didn't work out. And so I made my own iPhone app to help me track a habit of like write every single day. Because Chris Gillibo inspired me of like this idea of write a thousand words a day, show up consistently, make it happen. And so I had done that and I was like 80 days in a row of writing a thousand words a day. 
when the app design handbook published. And the next day, this app that I'd made called Commit popped up and was like, are you going to write a thousand words today? And I remember thinking, no, I finished the book. <laughs> like it's done. And I think that next day I wrote like a wrap up post. Here's how the launch went, kind of kept the momentum going. And the day after that, I was like, okay, I don't have anything more to write. You know, I did it. And then I thought, well, this was fun. What if I write another book? And so two days after publishing the App Design Handbook, I sat down and started writing. And 90 days later, I uh, launched a book on designing web applications, uh, which is another area I'd spent a lot of time that launched to a bigger audience. It did $26,000 in sales in the first day. And so it was just like this wild time. And then two weeks after that, I started ConvertKit on January 1st, 2013. So to give you an idea, like that was, that's the context of what was going on then. And it was like the most prolific time in my life and uh, pretty life-changing as far as revenue and audience and everything else. Yeah, it's wild. I'm trying to put myself back in 2013 because I wasn't in this world at that time, but, you know, adjacent to it. So what was the, you know, creator sphere like in 2013? Who are you looking to for inspiration or a model, if anybody? Yeah, oh, there were a lot of people. So first, Tim Ferriss is who pulled me into this world initially of like reading four-hour work week. I remember being on a camping trip in like 2010, maybe, something like that, and discovering this world from there, from following his site, came across Chris Gillibo. He ended up like really providing the blueprint of how to do this you know, writing a blog consistently, building an audience, uh, self-publishing, all of that. Uh, so I was following him. I was following Jason Freed and DHH from Basecamp. They're writing. They'd self-publish some stuff. It was really two other designers, though, named Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale, who in March of 2012, they each published design ebooks to really small audiences. And they happened to, like, they didn't know each other, but they happened to publish their their books on the same day and both of them made it on Hacker News, which was, you know, where I was paying attention to everything. Yeah. Like the chances that you're working on a like self-published design ebook and another one publishes on the same day. But what was really cool is that they had very different pricing methods. So Sasha priced his, it was called step-by-step UI design. It was relatively short, like, you know, like an extended case study basically. And he priced it for $6 for just the book or $12 if you wanted the Photoshop files and everything that went with it. And Jared wrote like a full-length book on, I think called Bootstrapping Design. And he priced it at maybe $29 or something like that, maybe $39. And then Jason Cohen, who's the founder of WP Engine, uh, and now a good friend has been a ConvertKit customer for, I don't know, like six years now, seven years. He saw that and was saw, you know, same day, similar size audience, both show up on Hacker News. And he's like, both of you come on my blog and write a case study about why your pricing method is better than the other person's. And what was amazing about this for me is that they revealed their numbers. You know, and, and uh, I think that Sasha made like $6,000 and Jared made like $8,000 in their first 48 hours. And so I saw that and I saw, you know, we talk a lot about representation, like how important it is to have a diverse speaker lineup or, you know, having leadership in a company where you can see yourself in that person. And like you and I being white guys, we have a lot of examples out there where we're like, oh, okay, I can see, you know, see myself in the, these executives of that company or whatever else. This was an interesting example of representation for me because I saw 
people represented who had really small audiences, who were earning a meaningful amount of money in my exact field with something that I knew I was capable of doing. So it wasn't like, you know, the guys at Basecamp saying, yeah, we self-published a book, we made $400,000, you can too. And I'm like, I can't, I'm, I don't have 100,000 people on an email list. I don't have this audience. But in Jared and Sasha, I saw myself in that. And I was like, oh, I could do that. And they're both right and they're both wrong in their pricing method. And so I basically combined both of theirs. And so anyway, that as far as people that I was following, Chris Gillibo was a huge influence. And then both Jared and Sasha with their like transparent playbooks and all that. Crazy. Okay. So you started ConvertKit that January. I know you went on to write one more book, Authority, which is still referred yep. to quite often today. How did that process go real quick before we get into the next steps? Yeah. So I published Authority in April 2013. So four months after publishing the Absent Handbook. So if anyone is keeping track, that was three books published in seven months. Um, That's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> which is ridiculous. But it goes to show when you write a thousand words a day, that has a, a moderate amount of content per day, like an hour, maybe a little more of solid writing of, you know, focus, not like pretending to write, not starting to write and checking Twitter, you know, all that, but like of actual focus writing time. And so like, when you think about a percentage of a day, it's not that much, but a thousand words a day adds up really, really fast. Like if you think about, you know, a good length for a self-published book is 25,000 to 40,000 words. You know, you can, you could write a book, you have to edit it and all that, right? But you could write a book every four to six weeks if you had enough to say. And it turns out I had a lot to say. So <laughs> uh, in that time period, yeah, I started a software company and released three books in that time period. And, and authority really came about because people enjoyed the design content. But then they were like, wait, tell us more about this whole self-publishing thing. How does it work? How did you build your audience? And now one of my favorite things, uh, Authority is an older book now, and it could use another refresh or a, a rewrite for modern times. Um, though a lot of the principles still apply. But one of my favorite things is how many creators I follow now or who are friends now who got their start from that book. Like one example is we have a little farm, like a homestead. And... So there's a creator we follow named Justin Rhodes, who my wife is a big fan of. He has like a farming and homesteading YouTube channel. At this point, I think he's at like 900,000 subscribers on YouTube. And it's just like, it's an amazing thing. And in the very early days, he got to start after reading Authority. And so it's fun that like, we'll be sitting there with a family watching their full length movie that they made, you know, and then knowing that that creator who, you know, my kids love following uh, and our whole family loves following, you know, like help find their path because of authority written in 2013. After a quick break, Nathan and I talk about his decision to double down on ConvertKit at the peak of his own creator business. And later we talk about trends and predictions he's seeing for creators building today. So stick around and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. 
Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a creator science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Nathan Barry of ConvertKit. Before the break, we talked about Nathan's start as a creator himself, earning more than $150,000 in one year of self-publishing books in 2013. But then in October of 2014, he decided to go all in on ConvertKit, which was only earning about $1,000 per month at the time. So I asked Nathan how he made the decision to walk away from what seemed like an excellent content business to focus on building ConvertKit. Yeah, okay. So going back to that decision. So I wanted to I wanted to not just talk about designing software. I wanted to actually, you know, actively be building a platform myself. I think there's something that can happen where you switch from being from doing to teaching. And then, which is a a fantastic switch to make or like adding the teaching element, I highly recommend it. But you can end up where you only are teaching and you stop doing. And I I still wanted to be in that execution mode. And I didn't want to just move into like teaching case studies. I, I liked having my own material to pull from. And so it's part of why I wanted to get into software or run my own SaaS company. The other thing is I wanted recurring revenue because these book launches would be like, tens of thousands of dollars and you know in a day or in a month and then it drop off to you know a few thousand dollars like it was very spiky uh, revenue so i had these books and courses that were successful but convertkit at the time you know was costing me more money to run than i was actually making from it and it, it was not a clear decision 
And so what I did, I like to make little frameworks or mental models for things. And so I made a framework just of asking two questions of when, basically to determine, should you shut this down or not? And the first question is, do you still want this thing, whatever it is, uh, as much today as the day that you started? Because we all know those projects where you are like, oh, this is going to be so fun. Let's dive in. Like, it's just the only fuel behind it is enthusiasm and, and that early momentum just fizzles out. And so if you're in that position, you've been working on it for a while, whether a month or a year or five years, you look like, I don't actually want this anymore. This thing that I'm striving for, I don't want, then it's totally fine to just walk away. In my case, it was like, do you want to be the CEO of a software company? Because you don't have to be. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I still want that. I want that new challenge of growing and building software in a real company. And so it's like, okay, great. You still want it? Move to question number two. And that second question is, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? Because if yes, if you have, you really want it, you've given it every po- like, possible chance to su- succeed, your best effort, and it hasn't worked, like, it's time to shut it down and move on. Maybe you're not the right person for it. Maybe the timing isn't right. Uh, the idea isn't right. Like any of these things. And you, in good conscience, can move on. For me, the answer was no. And so there was a disconnect between what I said I really wanted and the effort that I was putting in because I was working on it part-time. I had this other business that, you know, the books and courses side of it that had, you know, more than half of my time. And so I really wrestled with that disconnect of like, uh, your actions and your words don't match. And I just think it's an interesting exercise as a creator to look for all the places in your life where your actions and your words don't match or your actions and your intentions don't match. Uh, I say it's a good exercise. It's a painful exercise because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a, a long exercise. <laughs> <laughs> um, some really good exercises are painful. And so for me, it was like, okay, I know that if I shut down ConvertKit now, I'll always wonder, could I have made it work? And that's not something that I really want to live with. That's not a question that I want to have. And so uh, I made the decision to double down on ConvertKit. And I knew that like the half effort wasn't going to get it done. And so that's why I decided to shut down the, not shut down, like I left them running, you know, uh, the books and courses, but I didn't put any more effort into it. So yeah, that was kind of, it was quite the decision and uh, it worked out in the long run, but it wasn't obvious that it was going to. That disconnect you're talking about is so relatable, probably to everybody listening to this also, because I mean, a lot of creators, and I would even say I'm in this camp a lot of times where you know what you're trying to do and you want that to be big, but we have this disconnect of I'm not doing everything I could be doing for that to be successful. Instead, I'm distracting myself from some of the hard things I could do to help it with starting a YouTube channel now alongside my newsletter or trying some other you know, add-on to this thing as opposed to maybe spending more time advocating for the thing I'm making already. In your case, was it I need to put all of the available time I have in my life towards this. And that's what would solve this disconnect. Or were there some hard tasks you were just completely avoiding? Yeah, probably both. I was trying to start something that was remarkably difficult. And I think I was downplaying how hard it would be. Especially, there are creators who like grind it out for everything. I'm probably, to some extent, one of those. Like I have a whole... You know, it sounds like the books came out of nowhere, but there's like 10 products that we did or eight products before the books, right? There's a whole, a whole list of things. But at the same time, the books 
came quickly, like the momentum from it. And so then I, I think I assumed that like, great, you know, I've got like a Midas touch here, you know, everything is going to, I've, I've learned the secrets of building an audience and all of this. And like, it'll just be easy from here on out. And so when I brought that mindset to growing ConvertKit, like it, it didn't work. And I think a lot of creators run into that where, you know, they struggle for a while and then they hit something that works and they've learned, you know, and they hit this inflection point that goes up. And then at some point that momentum will stall out. And then they're trying to use the same skills and all that to get to the next level. And, and it just doesn't work or they're expecting it to be easy. And I was expecting it to be easy because it's like, look, I now have an email list of 5,000 people. Like, this is amazing. And so I had to go back to putting in the hard work, understanding why people buy this product, you know, doing direct sales, manually migrating customers, hiring and recruiting a team, you know, all of these things. Because it ultimately was a new project and it needed a lot of new momentum. So yeah, it, it, was, it was quite a time, but like actually from the decision to double down on ConvertKit to turning around the growth in the company, it happened pretty quick. I want to flash forward here to today and we'll juxtapose, you know, that, yeah. that moment in time a little bit. There are a lot more tools available to creators today than there were in 2013. Right. So it seems like the, the means of creation has made it easier to create. But I'm curious if you think that it's net easier to be a full-time creator because more means of creation, also more people trying to create more noise, more competition, yada, yada, yada. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about you know, as the last eight years have passed, do you think it's becoming easier or more difficult to do this creator thing full-time? I think it's becoming easier. And I hope I'm not just one of the people who's like, back in my day, you know, we had to walk uphill in the snow and all of that. So things that are, well, a couple things. If our goal is a creator, there's a lot of goals, a lot of reasons that you might want to do it what you do. Um, but let's say it's, we're, we're targeting earning a full-time living. There's a lot of factors in that. One is that the price points of products has actually gone up remarkably. Years ago, when people were selling books and courses and all of that, you had a lot of eBooks for $10, a lot of courses for $50. You know, $100 was an expensive course. These days, if someone's teaching a cohort-based course, you'll see them do the first cohort for $500 and then the second one will be 1000 and then the third one will be 1500 And then before you know it, they're running a very professional, very well-produced cohort-based course. And, and these are like the best people at it, right? But their $3,000 is fairly, like it's not unusual if I come across a well-produced course at that price point. And so when you think about the amount of money that you can make with that, like now you have course launches that are doing $2 million. And they're maybe running that course twice a year or even bringing it back to a, um, a much smaller level, just being able to charge like $39 for a book. If it's something really tactical in your industry versus years earlier, it only being 10, that means it's that much easier. Like the willingness to pay is so much higher and it's that much easier as a creator to earn a living. It's still not easy. Like this is a very hard path, but there's a lot more there. So there's that side of it, just sort of the economics of the space. And then the other side is the tools. Um, like we're going to get to a point where every single service out there is offering a way to collect payments. You know, when I was first looking at launching books, it was like, do you want to use ClickBank 
e-junkie, you know, like the list of tools, it was really hard. Or you're going to embed a PayPal buy button on your site. You know, it's coming along. Right. Then there were tools like Gumroad that made that a lot easier, you know, now to collect payments in a, in a good way. Um, but email as well, right? You're, you're gluing together all these products with, you know, MailChimp or Aweber or something like that. And so, you know, now, right. I'm, I'm in the place where I'm building these tools for creators. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to make it as easy as possible. And so like with ConvertKit as a creator marketing platform, it's where you can grow your audience in one place. You can have the automation and the emails to connect and build a relationship with them. And then you have ConvertKit Commerce where you can earn a living all on one platform. And so it's all about how do we eliminate decisions that a creator needs to make so that they can go back to focusing on growing their audience and refining their craft. So I think it's easier, but it's still not easy. Totally. I imagine you are either sitting on a mound of like actual reported data or just like interview anecdotal data from creators to talk about the problems they have today still uh, most painfully. What are some of the biggest problems you're seeing today for creators? There's two that immediately come to mind. One is that there's more platforms than ever before. And so knowing where to spend your attention is really hard right? I'm supposed to have a podcast, a newsletter, uh, a YouTube channel, probably an Instagram. I don't know what else. And then like TikTok, you know, oh shoot, where's my TikTok uh, channel, you know? And everywhere you turn, someone is blowing up on one of these things. And so you're just starting to get momentum on Twitter. And then you hear about the woman on TikTok who is making $50,000 a month selling Excel courses, right? (laughs) And you're like, shoot, okay, I guess I need to be doing TikTok now. And like that little bit of momentum that you had with Twitter, like that goes away and you, you don't even notice that you, you got it. And so there's more ways than ever to grow an audience. And that brings to the second thing, which is there's more places for your attention to go. And so like a lot of the bloggers in 2010, 2012, use a lot of search traffic, a lot of guest posts, a lot of getting people to subscribe to your RSS feed and email list. And there just wasn't the same level of opportunity. But it also meant that that attention could be narrowed in and you could build that audience. Oh, that's the other thing that's changing is audience sizes are remarkably bigger than they were eight to 10 years ago. On average or like at the top end of the spectrum? Uh, both. Like people are building, you know, an audience of a thousand email subscribers or 10,000 so much faster. And then the big audiences are way bigger. Like I remember you know talking to the Chris Gillibos of the world or like Leo Babauta, he ran Zen Habits or still runs Zen Habits. Like Time Magazine's top 25 websites that make the internet great. You know like that level of thing. And back then I think he had 10,000 subscribers. Hmm. And that was one of the most popular most famous websites. And now there's all kinds of websites that you've never ever heard of. And they've got 10,000 subscribers. Whereas the, and then to point to the top end, these big email lists, so the people that you've, you know, paid a lot of attention to, you might have their book on their desk, that kind of thing. They're in the millions of subscribers. And so like just audiences are, are much bigger. Do you think that subscribers today are more willing to turn over their email address and maybe less willing to pay as close attention to theirs? Like what else has changed there? Do you think that the the subscriber quality has degraded on average? Um, It's hard to say. One thing we want to be careful about is drawing a macro trend from a 
micro data source. So something that, that happens naturally uh, with audiences as they grow is that the, the quality overall degrades. So for example, if I have 500 people on my email list, the open rate's gonna be super high, partially because of recency, right? A lot of these people will have just discovered me and they're, they're really engaged, they're interested. And so if you think about each individual person's interest starting high, like when I came across Chris Gillibo, I read every single article on the site over like a two week period. So imagine that subscriber who's like, wow, Jay is the best thing ever. And then over time, like on average, that's going to gradually decline. Where they're like, yeah, uh, Jay is a, like a good source for content. I like following his stuff. And then some of those people will even drop off. And so when you have a small list, most people are joined very recently and their excitement is probably the highest. And it's not getting diluted by you know, a whole bunch of other people. And so what tends to happen is as that audience grows, the average quality of the subscriber declines and the average interest of the subscriber um, declines. So I think what would be natural for a creator to do is say in, the, in this path from 500 subscribers to 50,000, they might see the interest and quality decline uh, as a percentage. And it would be easy to assign that to the industry. I'm like, oh, over the last five years, you know, people pay less attention. But it might just be a micro trend about their list. Because um, I think people are still building very rabid fan bases today. And so I don't think that there's an average decline. But I do think that the number of people interested, like our total addressable market, if we're writing about productivity or fitness or you know, any other thing, you know, or podcasting on any topic, is remarkably bigger than it was before. So this trend of there are more platforms than ever for you to invest your own energy into creating content. What's your recommendation for folks who are feeling that tension right now? Do you think it's prerequisite to be on multiple of these platforms? Should I pick one? Is there any way to prioritize one over the other? Yeah, we were talking before we hit record about how I have a YouTube channel and I make jokes on there about how like I know nothing about YouTube and like you should never follow my advice on what to do for growing a YouTube channel. I think people are going to come to this channel and they're going to be like, I have no idea what this is about. All the advice on YouTube says you should focus your channel. I didn't, and that's why I don't have any subscribers. And the way that that plays into my approach as a creator is I think you should have a couple things. So, so first, you should have an email list that is your way to reach your fans. So if you think about it, a hub and spoke model, the email list and the newsletter is the hub of what you're doing. But emails, like they have one fatal flaw. And that's that email does not have built-in discovery. YouTube, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and especially TikTok have built-in discovery like in a huge way. The best content rises. And so what you're seeing is you know, on email, you own that relationship. You're going to have great engagement. You can have this long-term relationship with fans. Um, and you can segment and you can add details to a profile and all this stuff. Uh, but it doesn't have discovery. And so now you need to choose, how am I going to attract new fans? Back in the old days, uh, we would guest post on other sites. You know, you'd have your blog roll uh, over on the side and link over to your friends and all of that. Today, the best way is usually one of these platforms with distribution. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, that kind of thing. So what I would do is have one primary channel for growth. 
In my case, I've chosen Twitter. That is where I'm going to attract the most people to my audience. And that's where I'm focusing. And then my goal is to grow Twitter as big as possible and then funnel those people into my email list so I can have a long-term relationship with them. And then you can choose a secondary distribution source, right? Of Instagram, YouTube, et cetera. And that's one that you might play with, but you're not actively working on. I actually can't decide in this moment if mine is YouTube or a podcast. But podcasts are terrible for uh, discovery as well. So, yeah, uh, I can't wait to talk to you about podcasting here in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. You know, but basically the idea is to have a primary and then something that you're playing around with and learning, but you're not putting as much attention into it, and then have the email list as the hub. Because where people make the mistake, and what I did for a long time, was equal effort into Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. And that does not work. So take all of that effort and put it into one of the platforms. And so to give you an idea, I've slowly built my Twitter audience uh, up to about 35,000 followers. And then over the last, like over the summer, I said, I'm going to start writing some threads. Uh, I'm going to see about how can I actively grow this? And so that let me take it from like 35, 38,000 up to 40,000. And then the last six weeks in particular, I said, I'm going to focus everything on this. I think I understand how this whole system works. Forget everything else. I'm going to focus on this one thing. And I've added 10,000 Twitter followers in the last five weeks, six weeks. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to ride this all the way to 100,000 subscribers. And then I'll see about if I want to put time into another channel. If you're not a short form video person, it feels like Twitter threads is the highest ROI third-party distribution platform out there right now. Yeah, um, I think so. That's, that's, that's my diagnosis. When we come back, Nathan and I talk about the trends he's seeing work for some of today's biggest creators, predictions for new opportunities, and an essential decision creators need to make when building their creative platform. Right after this. Hey, welcome back. One trend that I've been noticing over the last year or two is a lot of collaboration between creators. I don't know if it's necessarily a new trend or if I've just gotten better at noticing it, but it definitely seems to be happening a lot with the creators that I look up to. So I asked Nathan if he's seeing the same and what else he's seeing as trends amongst the best creators today. I think the creators that rise the fastest have probably two key attributes. One is they're working way harder and way more consistently than most other people, right? Because you're going to see them, it'll be the, you know, the iceberg thing where you're only seeing what's at the tip of it, right? They've been working for a long time and they break through above the surface and you're like, wow, overnight success. And they're like, okay, well, here's the five years where I was learning the craft, you know? And so that's the first one. The other attribute is like being really good and very deliberate about collaboration, working with other people, making friends in the space. This is why I miss conferences so much because conferences were amazing for that, where you just walk away and you're like, I, didn't, I don't have any partnerships. But now when I send this person an email, it's like, oh yeah, we were at that dinner with, all these people, you know? So it kicks off so many things. So I think of like Colin and Samir. They're YouTubers who uh, now have a channel all about the creator economy. They've been doing this for a long time because they had a they had a YouTube channel about lacrosse. And they built that up. They learned YouTube. They learned that, you know, that whole craft. And then what they did is when they started their own channel, it took a little while, but they have really partnered with like the, with a lot of people. 
their, their channel just passed 500,000 subscribers, but the level of reach of people that they're having on the show, you know, in their podcast, on their channel and everything else is huge. Like they're doing stuff with Casey Neistat, with Lily Singh, with, um, you know, Jack Conti from Patreon comes on and is a guest. And I think a big part of it is a ton of deliberate effort. And then also like they purposefully base themselves in LA. And so it's much easier to connect with those people. So they're putting in that time and effort. And so I think, I think partnerships are huge. Getting to know a lot of people makes a big difference. And then they're sharing your stuff. They're coming on as guests on your podcast. You're building that reputation. And uh, showing up you know, in person is an amazing way to do that. So yeah, partnerships really, really matter. But it's a lot more organic than I think people assume it is. Yeah. When we were talking earlier about the the disconnect between, I said I really want this, but I'm not doing the things that I need to do to give it the best chance. For me, that comes in with this podcast because this podcast is the lead of <laughs> what I want to do. I've interviewed a hundred incredible creators and I've barely asked for them to even share the episode that they were featured. Right. In. You know, it's like, there is so much more I could be doing because I had great interactions with these people. There's some number of them that I would feel comfortable saying, hey, let's collaborate on something or hey, could I even have 30 minutes to discuss the strategy with you on what I'm trying to do with the podcast? And I don't do it. And that's the type mm-hmm. of thing where I feel like I'm limiting myself because I'm not doing the, am I doing all the things I could be doing to share the show? Right, the promotion side. So here's something that I learned about Twitter, right? If, if someone hears the Twitter thread thing and they're thinking like, oh, I could do that, right? Which I guess two, two uh, Twitter takeaways that I had. One, half of my Twitter threads are just blog posts that I wrote years ago rewritten for Twitter, right? And it's a different writing style. Like some is like, yeah, you just copy and paste it. And it's like, no, 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 that would be terrible. Right? It's much <laughs> more succinct. You're trying to make whole points in one to two tweets in the thread. And usually if a thread is bombing, you know, and does terrible, it's because someone didn't like rewrite it for the medium. But the second thing is you have to have a group of friends who you're all trying to grow your Twitter audience together and you all promote each other's stuff. Everyone that you've seen grow like crazy on Twitter has this group behind them. In Not everyone. Most people you've seen do it quickly. And what they do, sometimes they retweet, but most often they're just replying. Mm. Because in the algorithm ranking, Twitter has gotten way better for discovery like over the last two, three years. Totally. So a quote tweet is the most, like the biggest endorsement. If I quote tweet something that you have, Twitter is going to give that the most credit in the algorithm. A retweet mm-hmm. is a decent amount below that. Like just a you know retweet without comment is quite a bit below. And then basically right below the retweet without comment or right with it is the reply. So you don't need to like, if we're having like a, a, if we put together a mastermind group of five to 10 of us where we're all going to grow our Twitter following, it's not that, okay, I now need to retweet everything that Jay says. It's that I just need to reply to Jay's best threads and I need you know, in this case, you need 10 other people to do that. And the algorithm will feed that really, really quickly. And you'll get so much more momentum. And it's not the same level of endorsement because they're not like, I'm not going to follow Nathan because all he does is retweet Jay's thread. Just like, no, we're friends on Twitter and we're interacting. Huge, huge insight. Do these people often have their own like back channel communication where they say, I just posted this, please go reply? Because I imagine oh, yeah. there's like a time function as well. Yeah, the, the general idea is replies within the first 10 minutes. It doesn't really matter, but just set up notifications for everyone you know that you're mm-hmm. doing this with mm-hmm. so that you get pinged when they reply or have a WhatsApp group or a text thread. 
I don't have an official group like that, but I have like five or six people when I know I'm like, okay, this is good. I just put two or three hours into writing this thread. Cause the other thing that it takes, you're like a thread. How long could that take to write? That's what I always <laughs> tell myself. And then I'm like, okay, this thing that I thought would take 30 minutes took me three hours, but I'm proud of it. So here we go. And the important thing is, right. You hit publish on that. And then you text five people and say, okay, I dropped it. We give it a reply. That's so good. I, I, I made a joke earlier where I was like, I want to append every thread with that gif of Jeb Bush saying, please clap. <laughs> yes, 100%. As much as I want to talk about the podcast, I feel like I would do a better service to the listeners to do some, some crystal balling here. You know, what types of things are you seeing as up and coming trends that maybe people haven't picked up on yet that creators are doing or that you predict might happen? through 2022. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so one trend that I think everyone is seeing, but maybe not, is that monetization is like direct monetization is getting so much easier. So all the platforms that were before saying, uh, we'll give you the platform for free, but all the money is ours. You know, that would be the Facebook Instagrams of the world. Then you have some like the YouTubes where they're like, okay, We'll share some of the money with you. You know, here's your cut of the AdSense revenue, so long as you go within these um, these tight bounds. Now all these platforms are going to say, like, we're going to give you a way to monetize directly. So Instagram is rolling out subscriptions. Uh, TikTok is playing with that as well. You know, uh, Twitter has super follows, right? They're all going to have uh, this method, you know, of collecting revenue, right? ConvertKit, 18 months ago, launched ConvertKit Commerce. Same thing, right? All the, all these platforms will go for a way for you to earn money directly from your fans. The second thing in that is that it's going to get even more distracting. So what happens is you're going to have a creator. Uh, I was browsing Twitter the other day, like I was playing with it on my phone, right? And it pops up. It's like, hey, do you want to launch super follows? And then you could make, I think it said I could make $2,000 a month with their little calculation. It was a cool little interaction in the app. You know, if you got X percentage to pay you $5 a month. And I think the creators who are going to thrive are the ones who take one of these opportunities. Like they sell, okay, I'm going to sell a course or I'm going to, you know, start a paid newsletter through, uh, through ConvertKit or one of these things. Or I'm going to go all the way in on super follows on Twitter. And they launch that and they really promote it and they stick with it. And the creators that are gonna like stumble are the ones who are saying like, okay, I've got super followers on Twitter and then I've got these new subscriptions going on Instagram and then don't forget to buy my ebook through ConvertKit Commerce, you know? And then, oh, don't forget, I have a community on Circle, you know, or Discord or whatever. And they're splitting it between a bunch of things. So I like to think about of it in terms of, do you wanna build a strip mall or a skyscraper? And a lot of creators want to build strip malls. And what I mean by that is that you get 5,000 subscribers on an email list. And you're like, okay, let me sell them this. And a certain number of people buy that. Okay, let me add this other thing. And a certain number of people buy that. Okay, now let me add this third thing. So you have all of these different properties built out on your real estate. And it's like, look, you're earning a great living. You know, We're now at $50,000, $100,000 a year from that. But it's all spread thin. An example of someone building a skyscraper uh, and I, I quote him a lot, but is James Clear, where for years he was like, I'm not going to monetize my email list. I don't care about making money from it. It is just how do I keep writing content and building 
build the biggest possible list, you know, guest posting everywhere, republishing content, pulling it all in, you know, the most people here. He got to the point where he's like, okay, I didn't make some money for this. And so once a quarter, like his only monetization is once a quarter, he would teach a habits workshop and he would promote that, teach the workshop. I think the first one made $20,000, which was quite a lot. Uh, and by at the time he stopped doing them, they were making like $200,000 a piece. But that was the only thing he allowed himself to do. Everything else went into building the skyscraper of the email list taller and taller. And the result is that, you know, he now has an email list over a million people. Uh, his book, Atomic Habits, was the single best selling book on all of Amazon, all categories, you know, everything, like beating out, you know, Stephen King and Goodnight Moon, you know, like whatever category Atomic Habits was number one, you know, selling millions of copies. And that comes from building a skyscraper. And there's not a right answer. It's not like building a skyscraper is better than building the strip mall, but you have to be intentional about which one that you're doing. Yeah, because it changes the decisions you make around that structure, right? Because I would put myself in the category of what got me to being able to be a full-time creator was the strip mall approach. Yep. And so now I'm sitting here and I've afforded myself more choice and more options. And I'm thinking a lot more like, how do I simplify this? Because I have actually seen this behavior where in my email footer, I have the, the buy me a coffee, basically yep. tip jar approach. And the more SKUs or products that I created, the less I saw people taking advantage of that. And to me, that was a signal of they no longer feel like they, they are getting a deal and they owe me for what I'm doing because I have effectively monetized that group of people already. Right. So that's interesting. That's, that's something that I, I want to think about also. Is, and it's a good thought experiment of what would the skyscraper version of what I have look like? Right. And how do I retroactively change that? Because I think I could. And asking yourself two different questions, right? We're recording this at the beginning of the year. It's often a time that a lot of people are reflecting and thinking on, on the future. And so if you say, if increasing revenue was the most important thing for me this year, what would I do? And sit down and spend 30 minutes or an hour like designing that plan. And then you set that aside and say, okay, if I didn't care about revenue at all, you know, my needs are met for whatever reason in this fictional world that we're stepping into, and I only cared about reach, what would I do? And you map out that whole plan, right? Because that's the approach that James took. He only cared about reach. You know, my approach, I, I cared a lot about revenue. You know, and so I, I built a lot of um, things differently. And so then with those two plans drawn up, and there's probably a third one, like what other things could you care about, right? You would draw up a few separate plans if you're only monetizing for or uh, optimizing for those things. And then just look at it. What are the other paths that you would take? And then you can decide, okay, I'm going to monetize in this way, but I'm really going to go all in on reach in this way. I'm going to simplify in this. Because we we downplay how much these other things that we're doing, you know, the seventh ebook that we still have for sale on our site, you know, and these other things that we're interested in. We like to lie to ourselves and say that, ah, that doesn't really distract me from it or that's not taking away from my primary focus. And the truth is, it, it is. Like, that kind of thing matters. And so get really clear on what you want as a creator and uh, put the time and effort into making that happen. I want to hear your thoughts on paid newsletters. One, because I think they kind of became in vogue over the last couple of years because it was novel, it was new, not as many people were doing it. 
Now we've seen some time pass. I'd love to hear what you think the outlook for that is and whether you think it's a one-time payment like yours is or some sort of recurring. Okay, I have all kinds of thoughts. So one thing that has changed, like we're talking about trends that have changed over time, is more and more forms of monetization have become normalized. And paid newsletters is one of those, which is amazing. Paid newsletters are really great for professionals. And so you need to decide uh, two things. One, are you a professional? And in this case, we mean a professional writer. And two, like, is this the craft that you want to be good at? So if you see someone like a, a Lenny Richitsky or Anthony Pompliano or someone else who's done a paid newsletter and is just killing it, right? Like incredible growth. They are really good writers and writing is what they want to do. Someone else uh, who's been on my podcast, Bern Hobart, uh, he writes a newsletter called The Diff and he's publishing like almost every single day because this is what he's good at. This is his craft. And so he doesn't view it as he signed up for a treadmill where he's like, now I have to create something every single week. You know, he's like, oh, I can do a paid newsletter three times a week and no problem because that's what he's good at. And so I think these like professional journalists making the move into a creator space, a paid newsletter makes a ton of sense. But if you feel like have, having to show up every single week or multiple times a week with paid content for your audience is going to be a big burden for you and that's not something that excites you, then don't do it. Because when you have an audience, you get to choose the job that you want. And so don't go and choose a crappy job for yourself. And I see a lot of people launch that and then they get three months or six months in and they're like, oh, what am I going to publish for Monday? I don't know. And it's so much pressure. And then also some of your best content can go behind a paywall and it makes it harder to grow. So I would just be really thoughtful about that. I'm not going to launch a paid newsletter in the traditional recurring sense because I don't need that deadline in my life. I don't need that obligation. Now, what I did do that I've had a ton of fun with is write a, a newsletter. I call it a paid newsletter, um, but what's different about it is it's automated. It is you know, set up in ConvertKit. So when you sign up, you get an email every Friday for I think it's like 12 weeks long at this point. And when I feel like writing, I go and add an email to the end of it. You know, and so every once a month, every other, every couple of weeks, I add another email to it and it gets built out. And the difference is that I charge people $100 one time to get access to this because then I have no ongoing obligation to them. Like I think the sales uh, page promises eight emails and now there's actually 12, you know, and soon there will be 16 or 18, right? <laughs> like I set the bar low. And the, the only reason that I did a $100 payment on it is... So it's a newsletter about money and like basically what you should do as a creator once you've made a full-time living, you've made $100,000 a year or more. Like what should you do with your money? How should you think about it? How should your mindset change? And I wanted to be transparent with all of my finances. So I just wanted to charge enough that it would filter out everyone who's going to give me a hard time about like, oh, you're just bragging about how much money you have or uh, that kind of thing. So really the $100 was like a barrier to entry, but it's been fun. The newsletter's made, I think, $20,000. I've donated all of that money to uh, uh, Charity Water, a new story charity. And it's like, I get to use my own product and convert it. And I, I just love it. I love that approach. I've been thinking about lifetime payments a lot lately, but it comes up a lot in the context of community 
I think mm-hmm. it's tough there because if it's not a broadcast relationship and you want to grow that thing, even if you are donating all of it, you have to get more people in the door constantly. And that can have right. a degrading effect on a community, but in a broadcast capacity, now, say this was like a, a for-profit thing you were doing, you could go to that sales page now and amend that and say, actually, it's 12 right. emails now and I'm going to double the price. And only the people who yep. see that are the new subscribers. I, I think that's great. And it gives you an opportunity to relaunch it too, um, which is pretty fun, right? You could do a quarterly launch or something or whenever you're like, hey, oh, I got really inspired and I wrote four more emails in it and I tweaked this one and I rearranged it, you know, and it's better. And so now it's $150 and everyone who buys it this week gets it at the old price or something like that, right? It gives you this opportunity to relaunch it and there's not a lot of pressure. I think once people get to the point where they're making a full-time living as a creator and they've done that for a little while, the tendency is like, okay, I made 100,000 last year. How do I make 150? Made 150, how do I make 200, 200, 250? You know, they're like their own auctioneer in their head, like just going higher and higher. And there's a point where you should say, how can I have more fun? What's the project that I want to do that I'm going to charge money for it? Because that communicates that I'm demonstrating value to the, you know, to the audience, but I'm just going to have fun. And that was one for me where this was just a fun thing to do. And it happened to make 20 grand. I really love this conversation, both in real time, but also in re-listening during the edit. Nathan's challenge about building a skyscraper or a strip mall is something that I think about a lot these days. In fact, this conversation was part of the reason that I decided to build my membership, the Creative Companion Club. I did that exercise of wondering, what would it look like if I built a skyscraper? And to me, it looked like shutting down some of my other projects and really focusing on the Creative Companion brand and building one signature product. I'd really encourage you to do the same exercise for your business. What if you were maximizing for reach? What would you do? What if you were maximizing for revenue? What if you were building a skyscraper? If you want to learn more about Nathan, you can visit his website at nathanberry.com or learn more about ConvertKit at convertkit.com. I'm an affiliate for ConvertKit, so I've put my link in the show notes if you want to use that. And once again, I encourage you to subscribe to the Nathan Berry Show here in your podcast app. It's a fantastic show, and Nathan talks to some incredible creators. Thanks to Nathan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show, and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.